What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Today at Rachel's World, I'd like to tell you about expository text. What is expository text, you may ask? Well, let's start by saying that the purpose of expository text is to explain something or give information. So this kind of text is designed to teach someone something. Newspapers and magazines are great examples of expository text we often encounter. Additionally, many of you may have used a textbook at one time or another, which is also another clear example of expository text. Because many do equate expository text with dry, dull textbooks, some people react to expository text with disdain. However, just because a text is expository does not mean that it has to take all the fun out of learning. And the very best authors of expository nonfiction for children are aptly able to convey their love of the world to readers. One of my all-time favorite authors of expository nonfiction for kids is Gail Gibbons. Writing on a wide range of topics from tornadoes to ladybugs, all of her books encourage readers with bold illustrations and lots of factual information. But good authors of expository nonfiction don't just keep their readers engaged, they also construct their text to support the reader as they read. One publisher of a number of excellent expository texts for kids that uses support elements is D.K., In their books, like the first dinosaur encyclopedia, they use headings to organize the large amounts of dinosaur information as they compare and contrast the meat eaters and the plant eaters. For the inquisitive dinosaur fanatic, a book like this is just the thing, but it doesn't have to be about dinosaurs. There are all kinds of things out there that the kids are interested in. And here at Rachel's World, we think that a great expository text may be just the ticket for learning more about the things kids love. A child's first experience with poetry is almost never with the eyes. Children hear poems before they ever see them. Gina Clark, a poet and teacher, believes poetry was meant to be heard, not read. Today, Clark visits with Rachel on Worlds Awaiting about the pluses of reading aloud to our children. It helps them as they're beginning to read, speak, and explore language. Gina will also read some of her own poems in the course of the interview. Gina Clark is a Utah native and mother of six children. She's taught as an adjunct at Brigham Young University and at Utah Valley University. She's currently a writing instructor with BYU's Independent Study. It should go without saying that Gina is an avid supporter of her local public library, where she's been a volunteer storyteller for over a decade. Her monthly storytime presentations might better be called Poetry Time, since she packs in plenty of poems. Here's Rachel with Gina. We have Gina in studio today. Welcome, Gina. Thank you. You know, one of the things that I think is so important and that brings your experience to the table, especially with poetry, is this sense that poetry was meant to be heard, not read. So talk a little bit with us about that. Why why do you think poetry is better heard? Well, I, I think poetry is about patterns. 
in its in its essence, and that's one of the reasons why it's so wonderful for uh, emergent literacy for for children who are beginning to speak, beginning to read, beginning to access all the the wonderful elements of language. Poetry is about patterns. You have patterns of sound, which is essentially what rhyme is. Rhyme is a sound that is repeated with perhaps a slight variation or no variation at all. Uh, Poetry features patterns of breath and patterns of accent and unaccented uh, uh, passages uh, or uh, uh, syllables. And identifying patterns is something that a child needs to learn how to do in order to be a very successful reader and indeed a, a, a successful learner. And one thing that poetry does so successfully is it dishes up just a very large helping of undiluted patterns. You get to see those patterns in, in their intensity in, in, a, in a poem. Rhyme is one of the things that makes it easier for a child to learn new vocabulary. They can anticipate that. When I do lap times and story times, I'll share a poem and often I will read one rhyme but not read its matching pair in the next line. And the children, because of the context and because of how they're already learning patterns, are able to supply that word. Two words I like to say a lot are Marvelous and astronaut. Some other words I like to say are peppermint and hip hooray, kaleidoscope, whirligig, pebble, pumpkin, pop, and pig. These words tickle all my teeth and roll my tongue up underneath. Parakeet and carousel are also words I love so well. Too bad I rarely get to say, I'll ride a carousel today. I like the word anemone, both in the dirt or in the sea. I like two words turned into one, like hammerhead and bubblegum. Meow and bark are words I like, though I'm not fond of scratch or bite. I like spongy, squab, and spud. I like marbled, milky, mud. I like words that seem to sing, like lollygag and dingaling. A word can whisper just as well, like persimmon and whippoorwill. I like the word australopithecus, though I can't tell you just what thing it is. Somersault and icicle, juggernaut and bicycle, indigo and albatross, piccolo and candy floss. Though speaking them I may sound wise, these words are my mouth's exercise. I like bottleneck and beanie. I like zamboni and zucchini. My name's a word I love to hear when spoken by somebody dear. Please and thanks and chocolate, these are words I say a lot. Of all the words I like the best, I think my favorite word is yes. And so speaking a poem aloud, uh, hearing it spoken aloud, I think makes us more attuned to those patterns in language. Uh, I think there's something that we maybe turn off our ears a little bit when we read a poem just silently on the page. But when we speak it aloud, we're forced to practice those kinds of things. I think uh, adults often take for granted the kind of physical component of speech. You know, I have a daughter who has uh, some speech difficulties, and so she goes to her speech pathologist every week at the elementary school just so she can learn how to produce the sound correctly. And and I'm not a speech pathologist by any means, but her experience has taught me to recognize that there's a lot of physicality that goes into speech. And poems allow you to practice that. It's great uh, movement for the mouth, for the jaw, for the tongue, to learn how to create those sounds. Also, uh, when you speak a poem aloud, you have to learn fluency and pacing. You have to learn where your breath goes. And the poem teaches children how to do that with line breaks and with the importance of punctuation. So poetry out loud is just a great way to practice all these things that are important 
for emerging literacy, for those kinds of skills. Um, and, you know, uh, music and rhythm of poems, it's one thing that makes memorizing something easier. And that task of that, that skill of memorizing something is great for children to learn. When I ask mom what's in my lunch today, this is what I wish she'd say. Soup inside a heated bowl, honey butter on a roll, little salt and pepper shakers, a perfect stack of sliced tomatoes, orange soda with a straw, one red apple round and raw, carrot sticks with veggie dip, a sack of spicy nacho chips, a napkin round my neck to tie, one slice of chocolate pudding pie. Mom says, how about PB&J? I say, okay. And I think another thing about the oral and aural nature of poetry is that it uh, links us back to, again, that childlike experience. Uh, it was the poet Donald Hall. He wrote a great essay. Uh, he called it Milk Tongue, Twin Bird, and Goatfoot. And I talked about how, you know, initially as children, as infants, we experience the world through our mouths. And so speaking a poem aloud is one way to get back to that, to the pleasure of the mouth, of the sounds that 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 a, that a mouth can make. And, and you know, I've, I've encountered so many poems like that where uh, even if I can't read them very well myself, I want to. I want to say the words aloud because it feels good. There's something – there's a pleasure in that. He talks about the idea of the match – and the unmatched, you think of a small child playing with toys, putting together a puzzle, then taking it apart. Those little beads that can pop and unpop. He says that language does that too, that you can have a rhyme that is both a match and an unmatch. And the way that language does that mimics what an, an infant um, first experiences in, in his or her world. And so I think that that's one of the really great reasons to read poetry out loud to hear it read and spoken aloud is because it gets us back to those origins that we have, the, the roots of our, our pleasure in poetry and, and in our bodies, um, and, and helps children to become better readers. Time flies. Like a bird on the limb of a bare autumn tree who seems to be singing his song just for me. But as soon as the bird's lovely last note is sung, he leaps from the tree beats his wing and is gone. I cannot now see his glassy black eye as I watch him wheel an arc in the sky, smaller and smaller and further away, a second, a minute, an hour, a day. Maybe give us a few tips for, for people that are a little uncomfortable reading poems aloud, because I know I am. That was one of my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. I will admit that, listeners out there, that, <laughs> that that's my weakness. I am not a very good reader alouder. Mm. <laughs> I'll make that mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's difficult for me. So what would you do if you were a parent or someone that, that did have this weakness like mine, and you just felt like that reading aloud was just not your strength? So what are some tips along those lines? Well, I think first to become familiar with, with what you're going to read um, and maybe not to read it aloud uh, initially, right, to read it on the page first, become familiar with it, and then, you know, read it out loud a few times just so you can kind of see uh, where the poem is taking you. Um, and, of course, you've got to ask yourself, what, what, to what end are you doing this? You know, if you're just sitting with a, a child at your side reading, I, I, I think there's every reason to be casual and to be, again, to, to kind of embrace the idea that it's playful, that it's fun, you can make a mistake, it's okay. I love this glove, my baseball glove. Oh, sure, it's caught a ball or two, but that's not all my glove can do. It makes a perfect pillow and a handy extra pocket. I can spin it like a frisbee or launch it like a rocket. 
As a mask, it makes a cool disguise, and it's also good for swatting flies or catching them if I can. But look how big it makes my hand, and I can pound it like a drum or shade myself when there's too much sun. And when the outfield grass is wet, upon my mitt I just might sit. I love this glove, my baseball glove. Too bad my other hand is bare. A baseball glove cannot be shared, but that bare hand can trace its stitches, and it can scratch my palm that itches. And all balled up, my fist can fit inside that sweaty leather mitt, like a meatball in a ladle, or a baby in a cradle, or like a spider in a fat brown bloom, or a great round crater on the moon. I love this glove, my baseball glove. I'd like to wear it all day long. Now, how could that be something wrong? I could hold a lot of stuff inside my trusty baseball glove—a sandwich or a change of clothes. Those rocks I found are a thorny rose. Of course, I'd play a game or two, 'cause that's what this glove's supposed to do. And at night, I'd lay my head on it. This good old worn-out baseball mitt, this soft and smelly hand of leather with all five fingers sewn together. My baseball glove. This glove, I love. My very favorite poet, Eileen Fisher. I just love Eileen Fisher. Oh, I Fisher. love Eileen、yeah, Fisher. She、too. died in 2002 and was 96 years old at the time. I mean, hundreds of poems, wonderful anthologies that, you know, just resonate today as much as they did 50 years ago.、Um, but this is what she said: that poetry is a rhythmical piece of writing that leaves the reader feeling that life is a little richer than before, a little more full of wonder. Beauty, or just plain delight. I found that to be my experience every time I encounter a great poem. For any kind of a reader, whether it be, you know, directly written for a child, or you know, a different kind of poetry for maybe an adult reader,、um, it just leaves you a little bit richer. You you approach the world thinking, you know, I'm going to look a little bit more closely, and that's why I love poetry. And that's why I love poetry too. And I I feel like I I'm a little bit richer today for having <laughs> having visited with you. Yeah, so this is wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. your time. Rachel Wadham talking with poet Gina Clark about the importance of reading poetry out loud with our children in their developing years. Next, Rachel visits with Julie Rose, host of BYU Radio's Top of Mind. Here she tells the story of writing and recording episodes from her childhood. She was motivated by a desire to share them with her nieces and nephews. The whole exercise brought her closer to her siblings and deepened the bonds with her nieces and nephews. Julie also gives tips on preserving personal and family stories. Julie Rose is a seasoned broadcast journalist and interviewer, and winner of multiple Edward R. Murrow awards. Prior to joining BYU Radio, Rose worked as a reporter and produced spots and feature news stories for NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Here's Rachel and Julie Rose. We have Julie in studio today. We're so glad to have you. Welcome, Julie. It's my pleasure. You know, today I am really excited to talk to you a little bit about your family stories, particularly about how you see them have making a difference, kind of in the lives of the people that you、um, that you engaged with. So, tell us a little bit about how they connect with the people that they were intended for, the audience. What were the connections made there?、Um, I there are there are stories of things that I have maybe. I think a lot of us do. If you had 
I don't know, I, like the way it was when I was a kid, you know. we I have these images in my mind that for this whole period of growing up from like 5 to 11 years old, I was the oldest of five kids. We were living in Provo, Utah. It was the 80s, a totally different time, of course. And we would just like roam free across downtown Provo and we were on our bikes. And, and I just have this really intense, these memories that I know my siblings share about, about what the freedom we felt and the sense of adventure and camaraderie. And, uh, and and as my siblings have started having children, I it occurred to me that, that you know, that that's such an intense part of, of how I shape the way I see my siblings and our relationships, you know, some of the came about from those early years when we were adventuring and what everybody could be counted on to do and the goofy things we did. And that my nieces and nephews didn't all they saw was that their parents were grown-ups. Like the the it's hard for little kids to imagine that their parents were kids once, like them. And I would see sometimes my nieces and nephews doing some of the same kinds of things that that we did, you know, some of the same adventurous spirit in my brother's kids especially and I would think Oh, you know, that's just like your dad was when we were kids. And they would kind of look at me blankly like, what do you mean? And so I feel like it actually deepened a little bit the relationships that my nieces and nephews had with their parents. And I think that's a perfect way to look at it because really these kinds of family stories really do that. That's their intent and purpose is to connect us with our heritage and our relationship and to get a deeper sense of understanding of not only who we are, but where we've come from and building that is a wonderful thing for all families to do. I uh, Early on when I started this, I think I did about four different CDs. And so there may be 13 stories in total. And they're very – initially they were very time intensive. And I felt all this pressure to, to pick just the perfect story and have it have a perfect arc. And, and as time went on, I realized that the kids didn't really care what happened in the stories. It freed me up to be able to not to, – to, to just to tell the stories that I felt like could really, really give life to my siblings – as they were as children. And so it didn't have to be some elaborate story about how, you know, something happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's just like, oh, you know, like the time that my sneaky middle sister dug up some baby pictures of my brother when they were in middle school and sold them for a profit to all of her friends at middle school because – because he, everybody loved Chris, you know, everybody was in love with our blonde haired, curly haired brother in middle school. And, and I was like, you know what, that for me, that, that, that really, cause she has a son who's also a little bit sneaky and I could absolutely see him doing that. Uh, and, and I thought this, I want to be able to tell this story and her kids loved that story because it, 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 I think it, it made her – it helped them see themselves in her and gave them something to talk about and made her more human. And not that much happened in the story. Like nothing dramatic happened. It was just that she did this and that was so her. I love that. That is a, a wonderful story. How have your siblings responded to these stories? I mean, when they hear them, what what is their reaction? Um, I think it's a little uncomfortable for them to listen, honestly. Um, I mean, I'm not tattling on anybody in any grand way. And I'm always very careful. Nobody, everybody comes off well in these stories. That was important to me. This isn't about like, you know, digging up family secrets. 
Um, but I want, but I think largely they, in fact, I've, uh, I've slacked off in the last couple of years. And, and I know that there's a little bit of disappointment about that because, um, you know, in terms of these new stories, because I think every year it became this like, ooh, we get a new CD from Julie at Christmas. And what stories is she going to tell? And it would be a chance for, I think the parents would listen sometimes with the kids, but I know especially they turned out to be really useful for keeping kids quiet in the car. That was the funniest thing that I learned. And and as and initially I, I, I gave these just to my siblings. It was only for my nieces and nephews. But then I let it slip to a good friend that I had done these stories. And she said, well, my kids love you. I think they would want to hear stories about the Rose kids. So I gave her a CD. And then she started using it in the car to keep her kids quiet on the drive to wherever, you know, because you're in the car all the time with kids. And when they're four and five, it's a nightmare. She's like, these stories are magic. They keep those kids so quiet and so on the edge of their seat. And then... Uh, and then someone would be in the car, one of one of their friends, and hear the stories, and then go home and tell their mom, "Oh, we were hearing the rose stories in the car today with the so and sos." And then that mom would come back and say, "What are these rose stories? I got to get my hands on these." And then I would hear, like, my friend who you've never met wants one of these CDs, and is that okay? And pretty soon, like, it kind of just became this thing, you know. So um, that that's the thing that truly surprised me most of all was that it wasn't just my nieces and nephews who were interested in these stories. Uh, so, and they often will say, I'm, I'm so excited to tell my stories. I have stories about what we do as kids. And that is like the best thing, I think. To encourage kids to want to tell their own stories is something I never in a million years would have imagined. That them listening to how grownups or their parents or their mom's friend had adventures as kids will make other kids want to write down or tell their own stories. I mean, that as someone who loves stories and loves to tell stories, that's like the best outcome possible for me. Well, and I agree totally, Julie. I think the reality is that good stories beget good stories. I mean, when we hear a good story, we want to tell our own story. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about today will inspire some people out there to maybe start telling their own family stories. So what kind of tips could you give to people who want to start this, maybe recording audio or even just writing down their own family stories to to share this heritage with their own family? I think the first thing is just to kind of brainstorm a little bit. Think about the stories that you and your siblings love to regale each other with when you get together and reminisce about the good old days. And then I started with writing. I just kind of did like a free writing, just wrote it down and tried to like channel the emotions and the sensory, you know, what did it feel like and focus on the details um, of the feeling, put yourself in it and then maybe refine it a little bit and think about, well, could I add some, you know, some character descriptions? Could I you know, add a little bit of an arc? Like, how did it resolve? Does it, it doesn't need to have a, an ending, really, I don't think. It doesn't have to have a moral to the story always. Um, and then you can, I'm in radio, and so it was easy for me just to pull out my handheld recorder and, and put these down, like read them, record them for kids. But uh, you could just tell them at a family dinner. Or, uh, you know, your iPhone. Most smartphones come with a recorder now on it. And, you know, you can record a five-minute story, and it's a digital download, and then you can share it around with the family. Just these fun little things that can become viral within your own families. And that's a wonderful way to look at it. It's it's something that's meant to be shared and something that's meant to be given and and received in many ways, but it 
the basic thing is just get started. I yeah. mean, you don't have to feel like you're a grand storyteller or even a grand writer or a grand orator mm-hmm. or anything like that. If if you just start and you keep going, it makes great <laughs> connections. Don't be too with ambitious. Everybody. Start with one, and if you enjoyed that, then do another one. But don't pro- don't commit yourself to something grand. <laughs> start small. As we close up today, Julie, tell us a little bit about how these telling these stories affected you. So how did this make you different in telling these stories and sharing these stories? You know what? I the, – the writing process, putting these down made me – I just felt so close to my brothers and sisters. It, it made me really appreciative of how lucky we were to have had the the childhood that we had and gave me this special little bond with my nieces and nephews. In fact, they would occasionally, I would come over and they'd say, tell the story about, tell us, tell us a story, tell us a story, tell us about the Rose Kids. And I'm like, oh, oh, I gotta, hmm, I can't remember how it quite went. But, and they're like, no, no, but then this happens. And then you have to say that Chris did this. And I'm like, you know these stories better than I. And for me, it was really just a great way for me to bond as well with my nieces and nephews, which was the selfish goal in the beginning. And all these other things came as a result. But really, it did fulfill that one goal for me. Well, I don't think that that's a selfish goal at all. I think it's an important goal that we really need to focus on all of us. Let's connect better with our families. And what better way to do it than through stories and storytelling. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today, Julie. You're welcome, Rachel. It was nice to talk. Julie Rose, host of Top of Mind on BYU Radio, talking about the power of sharing our stories with those closest to us and how to get started with the process. We finish up the show today with some teachers from Wasatch Elementary in Provo, Utah, who talk with Clara Goodwin of Worlds Awaiting about how they encourage their students to read. How do you implement reading in a classroom setting? I have read-alouds every day with my students. I pick some of my favorite authors to read and share with them, and I love to see their excitement. When we have library, they go right towards the author section. We pause in our read-alouds and talk about the book and really apply it to our lives and to things that happen in a third grader's everyday life. And so they can continue to read at home and at school and think, how does this apply in my life? Or when have I seen this before? And it continues to help them want to read. One thing we do is book club circles. The kids are assigned books of high interest and we have assignments assigned to their reading and analyzing the text and different assignments like that. But the kids really get to sit around and discuss elements of plot and elements of character development and really get into their books. Why is it important for kids to think reading is fun at a young age? Reading is fun at no matter what age you are, especially at a young age. It's habit and it's something they're going to carry with them through their whole life. At a young age, they go from learning to read to reading to learn, and you're a lifelong learner, and so reading is a fun way to continue to learn. Mostly, I think, just to build literacy to build a way to interpret the world. So they are building the tools, the pieces they need to walk through the world as a citizen and to contribute to the world around them through literacy. What advice do you have for kids who don't think reading is very fun? 
I would say pick a genre that you are interested in already. So if you love bugs and creepy crawlies, find science books. If you love make-believe fairy tales, you know, find those types of books that you are already interested in and then start there and then continue to read your favorites and then expand the genres. I would say go pick up Lewis Sacker's Wayside School is Falling Down. And if you don't think it's funny, let's read about a little kid falling out a window and climbing up the ponytails of another little girl, then nothing will be funny for the rest of your life. What is your favorite book and why? My favorite book is The Book Thief by Marcus Susak, and I love that it's written in a different perspective. It's written by the character Death, and so it's not a person and it's not a place necessarily. It's an abstract narrator through the story, and I love the story that he tells of trial and of human hope and love. My favorite adulthood book is probably Barbara Kingsolver. She wrote The Poisonwood Bible, and that's probably my favorite book because... She writes every chapter from somehow manages to capture the vantage point of four daughters of varying ages and manages to do it very well. So I've always loved that book. Teachers from Wasatch Elementary School in Provo, Utah, talking about instilling the love of reading in their students. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.